0: I'm David Freudberg, host of Humankind, and I love my work, the opportunity to talk with remarkably enlightened people about things that really matter to all of us. And honestly, the most fun I have is when I hear from listeners I've never met, often from places I've never visited, who've been touched by our Humankind program. The grants we get from the funders you hear named on our program simply don't cover all our expenses. And if you like what you hear, we're asking for your help so we can keep the program and this podcast going. Please visit humanmedia.org and at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Thanks. This series is presented by Humankind Public Radio in association with the BTS Center. Funding provided by the Henry Luce Foundation and the E. Rhodes and Leona B. Carpenter Foundation.
1: If you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher.
0: You're listening to the Spiritual Care Podcast. I'm David Freudberg. This time... First responders.
1: People who have suffered relationship breakups or tragedies or death or war or hurricanes, whatever the situation, I think that the most important. Feeling that we need to address and we have to address it first is that they are all alone. They are isolated.
0: Rabbi Shira Stern is a longtime Red Cross volunteer who provides disaster spiritual care. She and her husband serve as rabbis at a reform synagogue in Marlboro, New Jersey, about 40 miles outside New York City. She's deployed as a chaplain at scenes ranging from ground zero after the 9-11 tragedy to Hurricane Harvey, which battered Houston, to the Boston Marathon bombing. Rabbi Stern leads a team of fellow chaplains and joins with nurses, mental health professionals, and other rescue workers. She sometimes finds herself at a temporary shelter caring for people who've been displaced.
1: There's nothing more lonely, than sitting in a room with thirty five hundred other people, you, you know, you, no privacy. You're, you know, eighteen inches away from the next cot, and you, yet you feel completely abandoned,
0: emotionally isolated,
1: emotionally abandoned, and emotionally empty. The Red Cross is there in the crisis, and it's important for me to be able to reach out. And say to people and look them in the eye and say, you're not going to do this alone. Yes, it's really hard. Yes, it's really scary. No, you're not doing this alone. And so abandonment for me is what motivates me to be present. I'm not here to be God. I'm here to represent the fact that God's hand is here to hold Virginia, you up.
2: At least 20 people are now confirmed dead in a catastrophic flood disaster the worst in 100 years. At this hour, 500 people remain trapped. Rabbi Stern and her team
0: and arrived in the town of White Sulphur Springs, population 2,400 in the southeastern part of West Virginia in 2016.
1: My very, very first visit was for a woman who was 89, she's sitting in a rocking chair under... An overhang, uh, you know, where you, so the overhanging of her front door. She's sitting with a sweater on and a blanket on her lap. It's 89 degrees outside and, and rising. And as the caseworker worked with her son, she told me an extraordinary story. She had met her husband in the second grade. They had been together since the second grade. They had been married 67 years. He had Alzheimer's. And when things got bad, she said, he's not going into a nursing home. He's going to be here where he belongs. The water came in, and she didn't realize how quickly it would rise. Her family wasn't able to get her out beforehand. Um, It came on very suddenly, and all of a sudden there was water. And there was so much water you couldn't even open the door. And she would walk her husband around the living room to make sure that he didn't drown. But after a while, it got very tiring. So they sat on the couch, and he put his head on her shoulder, and he said, "And she said to him, Bill, every ten minutes, I need you to lift your head, and I need you to say my name." And he did it after the first ten minutes, and he did it after the second ten minutes but they didn't pick up his head the third time. He had died on her shoulder. At that moment, a boat, National Guard, breaks through the front window, picks the two of them up, and takes them to safety. That had happened a week prior to my visiting with her. She was still cold. And it had nothing to do with physical cold. She was cold from the inside out and she looked at me she said how how do i live without him and at that point there's no great wisdom that's going to make her feel so much better she's sitting in a rocking chair and i asked permission to sing a song to her the first part was in english the second part was in hebrew and would that be okay middle of west virginia it's really odd having a rabbi in the middle of west virginia there are no Jews Really, no choose where I was for a hundred miles. And she, um, I sang her a song that talked about God rocking her in God's arms. And I told her the Hebrew meant, Ufros aleinu shlamecha. may God um, you know, shelter us with this sukkah, this shelter of peace. And I talked about how I prayed that God would be there to shelter her as physically we were under a shelter. With the bare bones of her house to the right that her husband had built, may I ask you to sing that for us? Certainly. It's interesting that she—I went to the wake and I went to the funeral, and she asked me to sing to her in both places because it was her song. It became her song. This devout Christian woman, bereft of her beloved, it was extraordinary oh guide my steps and help me find my way i need your shelter now rock me in your arms and guide my steps and help me make this day a song of praise to you rock me in your arms and guide my steps O oh, France, sukat du soukat, schlammer ha. O France, Oh, France oh, France oh France guide my steps and help me find my way. I need your shelter now rock me in your arms and guide my steps she held my hands and she kissed them did i feel god's presence in that moment you betcha i mean that i will never forget her and there are hundreds of those moments when you connect with people and you provide them with something that's going to sustain them or help them tap into what's going to sustain them from within, you know God's there. And sometimes it's also okay to be in a place where God isn't.
0: Is there a place where God isn't?
1: Let's just say God's hidden. And how do we know that? I mean, listen to our psalms. Don't hide your face from me. I'm asking for your help. Seriously. We're not the first people who say... Where are you, God? So I use psalms a lot, actually. I
0: was uh, watching it with a colleague. The first plane had gone into one of the towers. I said to my colleague, I believe it's terrorism and I think bin Laden is behind it. You served at Ground Zero multiple times a week following the tragedy of 9-11. Would you describe
1: what that was like? I would say controlled chaos, but there was very little control. Um, I was based at Liberty State Park, the train station that actually faces Wall Street, the, the area around uh, the World Trade Center. So we would bring people into the train station, we would talk to them, we would support them, and then we would put them on buses, bring them by ferry, which was eerie because most of the times that we made that little trip between New Jersey and New York, the people on the ferry were silent. Because
0: and of the solemnity?
1: they were drawing closer to what was perhaps the cemetery where their loved ones were. Remember, in the early stages, while there was hope that they were going to find someone alive, by week one or week two, this wasn't a rescue, and they knew it. And coming to grips with both the national calamity and that personal calamity was just overwhelming, and as we drew near to Wall Street, you, you saw people going into a shell, and we 'd walk them to the right of the American Express building to a um, observation um, deck. Those moments are seared in my memory when there was a whistle. Everybody knew what the whistle meant the whistle meant that there was another body part that was found. Another body it, part. Man, there were very few whole or an intact body. It meant everybody stop everything you're doing. So all of the you know earth-moving equipment, the people who were literally pulling rocks off areas where they thought there might be survivors or, or deceased um, people.
0: As a way of honoring the dead?
1: Absolutely. And what they did was they... Put the person or the body part on a stretcher, and as they walked it out of the pile, everybody would be silent and would watch. Now, there were hundreds of people there. You know, it's actually a huge expanse if you think about it, you know, as, as a place where activity was going on. There were people in hard hats. They were working on the pile. They were moving things around. They were um, clearing a path so that stretchers could go by. It was chaos. And seeing all that was really remarkable. When I went in in November to the New York side and saw, you know, first responders being helped, given massages, given a you know, a place to to sleep for an hour so that they could go back and work on the pile. It was unbelievable.
0: Shira Stern was educated at an Orthodox Jewish Hebrew school. Her late father was the world-famous violinist and Grammy Award winner Isaac Stern. In addition to being an ordained rabbi, she has a doctorate in pastoral counseling. In her work providing disaster spiritual care, Shira sometimes encounters people who confront perplexing questions in the wake of a crisis.
1: People say to me, Why am I here and my loved one isn't? Well, that's that's survivor's guilt if they were in the same situation. And helping them understand that their loved one remains on earth as long as they remain on earth because they have those memories to support them. They have those memories of the life that their loved one had lived. I will never say this is God's will. I will never say they are in a better place. I will never say God loved them more and needed them in heaven. How can you do that to someone who's in the midst of crisis? If, however, it is someone's theology and someone says to me, it was God's will that my husband was taken away from me, I support them because it's not about me. It's about them. Certainly not my theology. So when I hear people say, why? I have no idea. I do not know why this has happened. It's honest. I do know that I'm here to be with you. That's all I can say right now. I'm here. I'm here as you grapple with that question. I would not in the million years presume to begin to answer it. There's no answer. But the odyssey has been, you know, a question people have asked since we've articulated an understanding of God, so you know, we're in good in good uh, company.
0: I know that your famous father Isaac Stern died 11 days after September 11th, mm-hmm. 2001 from causes unrelated. How did you absorb the loss of your dad in the midst of everything else that was surrounding you in that time?
1: I was able to mourn my father by standing with families around these enormous pillars that were um, in the train station on which there were, you know, if you see this person with a picture on them, please... You know, let us know, and there's this is a phone number, or letters to their loved one, or pictures from little kids who had lost their parent. It was just unbelievable. And there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these, you know, on every pillar. And in in New York, the same thing. There was a whole wall wall of memories. And for me, I was able to cry with them. So in a weird way, September 11th and my dad's death are intertwined. And it was helpful to me because I could stand with a family if I was focused on that family. And as they mourned one person, I too could mourn one person, and we'd cry together.
0: So you were accompanying them, whether yeah. wittingly or not, mm-hmm. they were accompanying you.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: That must have been amazing.
1: It was. If my father had been well, he would have been down on Wall Street playing for people. He would have. That was what he would have done. So I was simply following in his footsteps.
0: Mm. And thank you for sharing that. Who cares for the chaplain in a case like that?
1: Uh, my colleague Zahara Davidovs-Farkas uh, wrote a you know, sort of a brilliant um, a chapter on compassion fatigue. You know, the risk of chaplains is that we are burned out by all these stories. I make sure when I'm the lead, and I have chaplains under me, that we process the day's events every single night. I insist on it. I insist on it because while it's not formal um, debriefing, it is a way to find a place for the stories that we hear. Otherwise, it just sticks inside, and it makes it impossible for us. It overwhelms us. Now,
0: does part of taking care of yourself include releasing the heartache to God?
1: Sometimes. 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 Um, Sometimes I say to God, okay, I I can't deal with this right now. I'm putting it in your basket. I'm I'm done today. I can't do this. Um, I will say this. um, My husband is an extraordinary man and an extraordinary rabbi. One of the things that helps me when I go on a two-week deployment is that we talk to each other at least once, if not twice or three times a day. I just check in with him. I need to know that my base is covered that I'm that somewhere out there there's sanctuary for me
0: We're exploring how care is provided by and for first responders to a crisis. You're listening to the Spiritual Care Podcast. I'm David Freudberg. To learn more and to access additional episodes of this podcast, along with other resources, please visit spiritualcarepodcast.org. For another perspective on first responders, we traveled further north to the small town of Rainham, Massachusetts. Residents like to say they're situated a half hour from Boston, a half hour from Cape Cod, and a half hour from Providence, Rhode Island. Rainham is the home of a proud fire department where the firefighters are also trained emergency medical technicians and paramedics. They typically work 24-hour shifts from 7 a.m. to 7 a.m.
3: Generally, you know, we, we do get an opportunity to lay down in between calls or to rest in between calls in the evening. Lieutenant Jeff Kelleher, who lives a thousand feet from the firehouse,
0: is a veteran Rainham firefighter and well familiar with the immediate needs of emergency response.
3: The typical day would be somewhere between 7 to 10 calls, depending, you know, I've done as many as uh, 24 in a 24-hour shift and every now and then or a few days a year nothing happens you almost have to check the dial tones on the phones you wonder if they're working you know but when we serve 15,000 residents we have over 220 streets as well as 220 uh, 25 commercial fire alarm systems as well as the residential monitored alarm Uh, fire system. So we're, we're a busy little place. Jeff says he hadn't
0: started out to work in the fire department, but an opportunity opened up and he realized it was a rewarding way to help people, even with the many tragedies he has seen
2: in his career. For Jim Tilby, it was a different story. I often jokingly say that firefighting is a genetic disease.
0: Reverend Jim Tilby is an on-call firefighter with the department, as well as the fire chaplain. The First Congregational Church, where he is pastor, is located right next to the firehouse in Rainham. He also serves as chief
2: chaplain of the Massachusetts Corps of Fire Chaplains. In my family tree, I have two great-grandfathers who were uh, fire officers, one in England, one in Massachusetts. Uh, two of my brothers were on fire department, uh, a brother-in-law who was active in the fire department. So uh, kind of in in the blood. And in my hometown, in, in Western Mass, I grew up in East Hampton, uh, there used to be a horn that would, you know, they had a signal and numbers. And you'd hear the horn and count, and it would tell you where the fire was. And we would, you know, jump in the car and go and to wherever the fire was just... Just to, to watch, we, watch it? Yeah, we were, you know, what they call sparkies. <laughs> yeah, we, we'd, uh, we'd follow fire trucks, chase the fire trucks. This was
0: before people could obtain scanners to listen to the fire calls in real time. There's long been a small subculture of sparkies and volunteer firefighters
2: who like to follow the activities of their local fire departments. To be honest, it's an adrenaline rush. There's no question about that. Uh, the pager goes off. The adrenaline just automatically uh, goes. Uh, not as much now as it was, you know, I, with age, you know. <laughs> used to be the pager would go off in the middle of the night and my feet would hit the floor immediately. Uh, now, it's, well, uh, let's see, what's going on? <laughs> uh, I'm a little slower than I used to be. So that's a part of it. Uh, part of it is certainly helping people. We're helping people on what may be the worst day of their lives as as a firefighter or as an as an EMT, and uh, that's uh, to me that's a good thing to do. I used to think that pastors would see people at their worst time, uh, you know, because a pastor would be called upon when there's a death in the family. But usually the pastor's there when things are cleaned up a little bit. We're there when things are really messy, Uh, the firefighters and, and the EMTs.
0: Have there been particularly devastating moments in your life as a firefighter or an EMT?
2: Well, there are certainly incidents that stick in my head, you know, hopefully mostly in the back of my head, but I can I can remember incidents really even way back um, in the 80s that are still very clear in my memory of uh, accidents that I had been to, um, ambulance calls that, that I'd responded to. Um, I did CPR on the retired fire chief that uh, got me involved in the fire department Uh uh, we weren't able to bring him back, but, uh, you know, things like that stay in your head.
0: For you, have there been what you've now come to recognize as kind of symptoms of trauma from some of those really horrible experiences that you've witnessed?
2: Well, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, mass Corps Fire Chaplains. Uh, after September 11th, we sent 28 chaplains to New York City over a period of time over several weeks, not all at once. And it's noteworthy that
0: Boston was the origin point for a couple of the planes the that were hijacked right. at 9-11, mm-hmm. and many people in the Boston area were directly affected as Absolutely. a result.
2: Absolutely. We were there to work with the fire department primarily. They realized immediately that they had a lot of people who were severely traumatized by this. They had just lost... 344 firefighters, and and more have died since of the effects of of that, and brought in some psychologists. And the psychologists would go to the fire station and uh, everybody disappear disappear. Nobody wanted to talk to a psychologist. A firefighter will talk to a firefighter, and a firefighter will talk to a chaplain. The chaplain is seen as safe, uh, we were welcomed into firehouses like we were long-lost brothers, even though we'd never met these people. Why do you think that was? It's sort of a bond, uh, because they know the chaplains know what they're about, speak their language, although we try to clean it up. Firefighters don't always speak in the cleanest language. <laughs> uh, and they also know that we're safe. We're we're not going to uh, you know, say, hey, you know what, this this guy needs to uh, go off-duty, he, he, he can't function. Uh, we might make that suggestion to the firefighter, where a psychologist could say, nope, this firefighter cannot be on duty, and they're gone. So they're always worried they're going to be taken out. And and at that time, nobody wanted to be taken off-duty because they were working their regular shifts and then going down to the pile uh, to look for the remains of their other firefighters so but they must have been deeply hurting. They were deeply hurting, and so they welcomed welcomed our presence with, with open arms. But the few days that it was on there, down there really made a mark on me, and uh, just stayed in my head. It was the only thing I could think about. It just came, kept coming back to my head. I was obsessed with it, 24/7. And it was only after I had a chance to go to a debriefing with other chaplains who had been involved in this program, and we all sat down, we all started talking about our experiences, and I thought, oh, I'm not crazy. (laughs) And you're not the only one. (laughs) And I'm not the only one. Other people are experiencing similar things. Uh, As one fire chaplain said, uh, I left a piece of me behind there that I'll never get back. So that was reassuring to know that that I was not the only one and I was not going off the deep end. And it kind of helped me to start coming back. And and the process took a while, but it, it worked.
0: It goes without saying that firefighters who double as EMTs serve an essential function in protecting public safety. And they have to be continuously available on a moment's notice to whatever problem or emergency comes over the transom. Jeff Kelleher.
3: Come to chaos in 60 seconds. There is no warning.
0: Come to chaos. Come
3: to chaos in 60 seconds. That's what I say. You just don't know. And you could, you know, we have emergency lines and we have fire uh, phone lines designated for fire alarm systems, but you could take any call on on any line in the building. And uh, some of our business lines we get called in emergencies for. So you could have somebody take a personal phone call. Somebody could call you from because they know a fire guy, and it's a small community. Some people bypass the nine one one system; they'll call the fire guy because they they just don't know. They ju- they just panic.
0: But for the firefighters themselves, being on the front lines relentlessly can take a personal toll. An estimated one in four firefighters suffers from some form of addiction, from substance abuse, including alcohol problems, to gambling.
3: People can get stressed out by the heavy demands of their profession. In this little town of Rainham, we've seen, we'll see anything that you see in any major city, city whether it was a decapitation a suicide, death of an infant, you name it, we have seen it. The opioid uh, epidemic, whether it was teenage kids, you know, in their bed when a parent goes to wake up the child for school type of thing. You know, really, we're going to see just about anything. We've had three fire fatalities in this little town. At this
0: point in our conversation, Jim Tilby, the chaplain, pokes his head in from the next room to say he heard a report of smoke in the building. Smoke in this
2: building? And At the Merrill School, the elementary school.
0: Which meant Lieutenant Kelleher, who was on duty during our interview, needed to leave abruptly to handle the situation.
3: I'm sorry. Okay.
0: In the cafeteria, they have a smoking and now sparking freezer
2: unit. There was Merrill School A-farmer to Merrill School, 687 Street.
0: It was a September morning, the very first day of school. The 300 elementary school students and staff were potentially in danger. Cap, I want you to come in
2: the third entrance. Not the uh, circle entrance,
0: the one before that, okay? Eventually, the children and staff were safely evacuated from the cafeteria, where the freezer unit was releasing smoke and sparks. Mercifully, no one was hurt. But things don't always end so happily. Again, Jim Tilby.
2: As a fire chaplain, uh, I have two jobs. First of all, to be there for the for the firefighters, for the emergency responders who are maybe dealing with this terrible event that has just happened. And second, to be there for those that it has happened to. Uh, the homeowner, the people who were with the person that, that was just injured or in the vehicle, uh, with the advent of cell phones, it's more and more common now. We have a, a terrible motor vehicle crash and uh, family members start showing up, friends start showing up. So, uh, you know, I'll be asked to say, go talk to those people and move them away from where we're trying to extricate this person from this vehicle uh, because they don't need to see that. It can get pretty wrong. Uh, it could be, yeah, it could be tough. Uh, but also, you know frankly, we need them out of the way. Uh, it's great that they're there to support their loved ones, but we need to do our the firefighters need to do their work and and get get some things accomplished, get the extrication done, get them ready to uh, be transported to the hospital. And uh, So a little space is, is needed for that. And they're being traumatized. They don't know if their loved one is going to make it or not. And that's that's a very traumatic thing, so uh, I'll be there to, uh, you know, be a presence. And that's what we do a lot as chaplains, is to be a presence. I have no magic words to take away their pain. Uh, but I can be there with them in the midst of it. There was a fire chief in the town of Montgomery who collapsed and died at a, a house fire this past winter, uh, so I went out and, and helped them with that. And, you know, it's it's a real trauma because you have the family, of course, who are have just lost their loved one. But you also have the firefighters, and firefighters are very close, uh, brothers and sisters, because we have, you know, male and female firefighters. It really becomes like a, fem- a family, and so to lose one of the family members in the fire department is, is very traumatic. Uh, So it's just extraordinarily painful. Rev. Jim Tilby,
0: on-call firefighter and chaplain of the Rainham, Massachusetts Fire Department. To the Spiritual Care Podcast. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Doug Sugertz. Editorial assistance from Andrew Andresco, Maggie Mantis, Kathy Graham, and Ken Rogers. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Connie Goldman and Tony Buck. The Spiritual Care Podcast is presented by Humankind Public Radio. To learn more and to access our other podcasts and related resources, please visit. Spiritualcarepodcast.org. That's spiritualcarepodcast.org. Thank you for listening.
1: The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.